You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. After taking just one week away from the Sermon on the Mount, here we are again, picking up where we left off. Our text this morning is unique in that it will likely raise a number of questions in your own heart and mind that probably won't be answered in the next 35 minutes. This means that many of you will leave here today wrestling with the implications of this text, feeling some tension that won't easily be resolved. It's important for all of you to understand that my intent is certainly not to be obtuse, nor is it to be provocative. My chief aim is to stay as tethered to the Word of God, and in particular, this specific section of five verses, as I possibly can be. In other words, I I don't want you to get my take on these verses, but I want to explain this text accurately and clearly as the very word of God. Before we begin walking through verses 38 through 42, here's just a quick reminder of the immediate context that surrounds these verses. Verses 21 through 48 are tied together by a particular pattern, a repetition found six times. Jesus refers uh, to something established in the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said. In this, Jesus is highlighting ways in which the Pharisees and teachers of the law had manipulated the scriptures. They had turned biblical commands into legalistic behavioral rules, which also served to justify their unrighteousness. Many had fallen prey to this unbiblical way of thinking. So in exposing the error of the Pharisees, Jesus is also lovingly instructing his followers by shepherding them back to the truth. Now that's the second part of the repeated pattern. But I say to you, you have heard it said, here's the misunderstanding, here's what I'm telling you. I'm clearing it up. Friends, let me encourage you to keep in mind the primary point of Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount as we work our way through the text this morning. How can citizens of the kingdom of God, those rescued from their sin and given new life in Christ, how can true believers live in this fallen world marked by sin and suffering, by manipulation and deceit, by constant temptation and the allure of worldly pleasure? How can the people of God live joyfully, courageously, humbly, obediently in a way that glorifies Jesus and compels sinners to come to Jesus in repentance and faith? How can followers of Jesus walk in the way of Jesus this side of heaven? How can our lives, brothers and sisters, how can our lives have a redemptive impact on our friends and neighbors? How can we live in this world but not be of this world? Well, this morning we discover another piece 
of the overarching answer to the questions many of us are asking. Look with me at verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There are three main ideas embedded in Jesus' teaching here, and we'll talk about them one by one. First, we find the idea of commensurate retaliation. Second, escalating resistance. And then finally, Jesus calls his followers to a radical response. Commensurate retaliation, verse 38. Escalating resistance, verse 39a. Radical response, verses 39b through 42. First, commensurate retaliation. Verse 38, again, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a well-known Old Testament law, but it's not just found in one place. It's referred to numerous times. I hear just a few. Exodus 21, 24. Leviticus 24, 20. Deuteronomy 19, 21. I want you to... I want you to understand and see that this Old Testament law is precise. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is not open-ended or subjective. The, The principle is that of exact retribution. Or we might also say commensurate retaliation. Punishments are to be equal to the crime. For instance, we would all agree that the eye, the eye is more basic to human functioning than the fingernail is. This is why we don't read, you have heard it said, an eye for a fingernail, or whatever you feel is fair. No, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This principle is explicit in the text I alluded to before. Listen to Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 19 and 20. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Old Testament justice in this case involved a punishment or a lawful retaliation that was commensurate to the crime committed. Now, why did this law exist? Let me give you one reason and then offer one clarification. First, a reason. 
It was meant to keep crime from escalating unnecessarily. The way our sinful human hearts work is not to respond to being wronged with a calm and sincere desire for exact retribution. When you were a child and your brother or sister broke your toy, you didn't calmly propose to your parents that together you search for a toy of the same size and value and then ceremonially destroy it as part of a small family gathering. And you would do all this in an effort to keep the level of family crime from escalating. Again, the natural tendency for most is to respond when wronged in haste and anger and then to outdo the offender just so he or she knows not to mess with you again. Well, a law like what Jesus refers to in Matthew 5 38 was meant to curtail that kind of escalating tension. The law said that once exact retribution or commensurate retaliation had been offered, justice was served and the case was closed. Now, here's an important clarification. This law was not given to individuals to be carried out according to their own judgment and in whatever way they thought best. No, it was given to the Jewish people as a nation. D.A. Carson writes, the law was not designed to be discharged by individuals swept up in personal vendettas, but by the judiciary. In other words, this was not a divinely sanctioned way of getting revenge. You hurt me, now I get to hurt you, just like God said I could. What we find here is not new. It's what we've Seen over and over again, Jesus is confronting a dangerous misunderstanding and misapplication of the Old Testament law that ignored the heart and paved the way for incredibly sinful and destructive behavior by people who claimed to be religious. Friends, failing to understand and apply the law of God carefully and accurately always leads to confusion and unnecessary pain. People were being legitimately wronged. But then the problems only escalated when the concrete guidelines and boundaries of God's word were ignored. You see, when the wisdom of God is pushed aside, everything becomes subjective and people start arguing for and demanding what they feel is right. Commensurate retaliation was replaced by subjective retribution. Again, when the wisdom of God's word is ignored, some form of human wisdom will take its place and it will always be a horrifically poor substitute. By the time Jesus is delivering his Sermon on the Mount, Proper biblical constraints had been thrown off and subjective, unrestrained retaliation was the rule of the day. And this was all justified as biblical. This is what the scriptures teach. If you've been wronged, then you get your pound of flesh. This is God's desire for you. Jesus confronts this error. 
As we've seen all throughout this sermon, Jesus offers clarity amidst all the confusion. This brings us to our second main idea. First, commensurate retaliation. Second, escalating resistance. Look at verse 39a. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And this is an interesting phrase that could very easily be misunderstood. What is Jesus saying here as he transitions from an Old Testament quotation to practical instruction? I want you to think about those gathered on the hillside listening to Jesus speak. Perhaps there were those who had taken advantage of others by misapplying the scriptures. Perhaps they were legitimately wrong, but in response, they exploited the process and demanded unreasonable retribution. Undoubtedly, there were oppressors like this in the crowd. And they, they would have heard Jesus loud and clear. But I think Jesus has another group in mind as his primary audience. It would be those who had been oppressed. Jews living under Roman tyranny. Think about this. One commentator explains, the common person was at the mercy of the Romans everywhere. On the street, in the court, in the presence of the military occupying forces, and in the everyday world of financial need. Jewish leaders had little or no power to execute justice to protect their people. Those who were hurt wanted to strike back, especially when there was no apparent justice to protect them. So personal retaliation through violent resistance was a burning issue among the Jews. Now listen carefully. It is within this oppressive atmosphere that Jesus points to the motivation of the individual disciple who has been taken advantage of and wronged. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. It is not the disciple's personal responsibility to resist or set oneself against the offending person. On a personal level, the disciple's first responsibility is to reverse the dynamic of the situation from taking to giving. Did you catch that? As a follower of Jesus, if you've been wronged, your first responsibility is not to fight back and therefore further escalate the tension by immediate resistance. Your first responsibility is to reverse the dynamic of the situation from taking to giving. Instead of resisting in a way that escalates the tension, you are to diffuse the tension by non-resistance. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, what does this even mean? What would it look like for a wronged follower of Jesus to respond to oppression with humble generosity? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus offers four examples of exactly what he's 
calling his people to do. Look with me at verses 39b through 42, where we will find a radical response. Look at the text. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here is the way of Jesus. Rather than seeking retribution for yourself, according to your own wisdom, adopt humility and generosity as a way of life. No matter what kind of wrong you experience, Jesus offers four very practical Examples. Example number one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, do you see immediately how Jesus is flipping everything on its head? The law-loving Jewish person listening to Jesus would have said, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, proceed to slap them equally as hard on their right cheek. An eye for an eye. A slap for a slap. But Jesus says no. No, don't, don't give them what they might technically deserve. And in fact, it's not enough to simply refrain from slapping them, but let them go ahead and slap you on your other cheek. Well, this sounds like madness. So I guess bad people are just going to get away with doing evil, right? Well, no though it might seem that way for a time. Here are a few things to keep in mind on this point. First, if someone's life is marked by an evil and unregenerate heart, they will ultimately pay eternally for their sin. God's justice will be served. Second, if what someone did was illegal, God has sanctioned human government to hold them accountable for what they've done. Third, and I think this is where we need to be challenged most, perhaps, perhaps your lack of retaliation, even if you can justify it, Perhaps your lack of retaliation and instead your humble generosity, maybe this will be what God uses to convict someone of their sin and bring them to faith in Christ. Friends, Jesus is not sanctioning evil, but he is prohibiting revenge. This is just one way in which true believers ought to be distinct from the prevailing culture. When you are wronged, do you retaliate? Do you seek revenge? When you are mistreated, are you quick to find justification for what you consider just retribution, which usually is whatever you want to do? At the very least, 
At the very least, brothers and sisters, what should turning the other cheek look like in your life? Because this does mean something, right? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Example number two, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Notice first the legal language that the text uses. If anyone would sue you. What we're talking about here is not someone coming up to you and ripping off your tunic and stealing it. As scholar Henry Morse explains, this is not outright robbery, but the process whereby the enemy adopts legal means of depriving the follower of Jesus of a part of his clothing. I have no idea what this would have looked like or how it would have worked or why you would do this. But it was a real situation. Morris goes on to explain how typically someone would wear a loincloth, over that a tunic, and over that a cloak, then also a girdle, head covering, and sandals. Uh, apparently, in this instance, some sort of legal action is taken when a follower of Jesus is, is going to lose his tunic. I suspect that most of us in this type of situation would would have the natural reaction of either demanding retribution, if you take my tunic, then give me a replacement. If that doesn't work, maybe, maybe we would play ourselves up as horribly mistreated victims. But what does Jesus say? If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So let me get this straight. I've already had my tunic wrongfully taken from me, and now Jesus wants me to give away my cloak as well? Uh, what's even more interesting about this is that according to Exodus twenty-two twenty-six, a man's cloak was his irrevocable possession. It was absolutely and rightfully his. But you see, Jesus reminds us here that it's not really about the tunic or the cloak. It's about something much more valuable than clothes. The cloak, if given away, would have to be voluntarily surrendered. So when a believer, when a believer is wronged in this way, the response is humble generosity. Again, how countercultural is this? A people that aren't consumed with their own interests, their own rights, but consider others as more important than themselves. This brings us to example number three, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. My first response to this verse was to wonder how exactly someone is forced to walk a mile. Well, according to most Bible scholars, this is likely referring to a practice involving Roman soldiers, whereby one of them could legally commandeer a civilian to help him carry his gear for a prescribed distance of one mile. Now think about how inconvenient this would be. And what if you were pressed for time doing the work of the day and you were running out of sunlight and, and along comes this soldier and he commands you to help him? 
What if something serious was happening? Or maybe you were simply feeling exhausted and lightheaded, and, and here comes this demanding Roman soldier. Friends, think about how inconvenient this would have been. What right does this soldier have to ask me for help? He can carry his own stinking stuff, right? Wrong. Jesus says that if you are asked to carry it one mile, do it. And then keep going. And carry it a second mile. Again, Henry Morris comments, the right thing, Jesus says, is not only to put up cheerfully with this unreasonable and displaced demand, but to go well beyond what is asked. Followers of Jesus are to be marked by humility and generosity, even in the face of tremendous inconvenience. So brothers and sisters, is this true of you? The final example Jesus offers, example number four, look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Notice first something subtle. The previous three illustrations are very specific. If you are slapped on the right cheek, turn to the left. If you have to give up your tunic, give up your cloak as well. If you are commanded to travel one mile, go two. Here, Jesus simply commands his followers to be generous, signified by the open-ended imperative. Give. Give. There is no qualification, is there? Jesus is encouraging generosity without condition. Friends, maybe Jesus does this because he knows our hearts. And he knows that if he offered specific instructions, we would either do it begrudgingly and then walk away with a sense of self-righteous satisfaction. There, I did what I was supposed to do. Or maybe, maybe Jesus anticipated that rules would be fashioned from his instructions anyway. So at least this makes it a little more difficult. Looking back at verse 42, let me offer you just a quick warning. Don't get hung up on Jesus' encouragement to lend. Again, this is not an absolute matter of doctrine. Rather, it is an encouragement to live and operate with a generous disposition toward those in need. Instead of thinking primarily about yourself, asking questions like, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? Instead, be willing to give with a heart of selfless generosity instead of selfish gain. That's the point. Now, brothers and sisters, as we conclude this study and prepare to observe the Lord's table, I want you to see how this text 
I think this is particularly helpful. If, if there's a little part in your brain right now that's like, this is ridiculous. Like, I need to go home, crack open a commentary, search for some articles online to figure out how to explain this stuff away. I want you to see how this text, perhaps more clearly than anything we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount so far, this text leads us straight to the cross. This text details the gospel-shaped life. Jesus is calling his people to walk in his way. He's not asking you to do something that he himself has not already done. Jesus is simply asking us, Redeemer, to walk as he walked. Let me show you this. Matthew 5, 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. There was a time when Jesus was slapped and beaten, and he did not fight back. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Matthew 5, verse 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. There was a time when Jesus' clothes were unlawfully stripped from his body. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There was a time when Jesus kept going, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those whose sins he carried. Philippians 2, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Matthew 5, verse 42, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
there was a time when Jesus displayed infinite generosity. He gave without condition. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, we, we have been rescued from our sin, fully forgiven and made new in Jesus. We have been united to Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And now we are called by our loving Father to be pressed into the mold of the gospel, to walk in the way of Jesus, to live more as a citizen of heaven than a citizen of this earth. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus, by the grace of the Lord Jesus, may we walk in this way for the glory of God, for our ever-increasing joy in God, and for the eternal benefit of lost sinners who will see our good works and glorify God. Friends, consider this text. Consider it carefully. What is Jesus telling us? Let's pray.